Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with me today is the newest music director of the Marcos Tanz Academy and our producer, Joseph Wren. And good evening to you, all of you gruesome people. Lucas. Yes, sir. As of the recording of this podcast, you are approximately 20 days into your 31 days of horror. I know what I've been watching lately, but what have you been watching? Have you found any new standout classics? Is there some gold in there? Is there some silver? I'll even let you have some chrome. <laughs> uh, we're skipping right over bronze because bronze is a weird place to be with horror movies. How's it working out for you? Okay, so uh, as as Joe said, we are now uh, 23 days into October as, the, as of the time of this recording. And every year, I, like so many other horror fans... Uh, take part in the 31 Days of Horror slash 31 Days of Halloween, whatever you want to call it. Now, for those of you who've never done this, the idea is very simple. You have 31 days and you need to watch 31 horror films. The obvious approach to that is you should watch one a day for 31 days. Now, if you're like me, the 31 Days of Horror turns into like the 45 Days of Horror. Uh, I, I pretty relentlessly watch horror movies throughout this entire season. So let's see. Um, I'm looking at my list right now. And so talking about some standouts, the two that have really struck me this year. Uh, one was a, a film from Montevideo named uh, uh, Virus 32. Uh, Virus 32 is a very weird psychological horror movie, kind of about zombies, kind of. Uh, the other one that really stuck out to me was The Sadness on Shudder. And those of you who have seen The Sadness probably just cringed a little. Um, it is unquestionably the most just unnecessarily brutal, hideous thing I've ever seen. And I had this strange moment, and it almost never happens to me as a horror fan, where I paused the movie midway through, set down my remote, and asked myself, why am I doing this? Do I need to continue? <laughs> it's one of those movies where you're like, okay, I know there's supposed to be a reason why that just happened. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, other than that, I mean, it was, it's been a pretty good year for like horror movies. There's a ton of great films out right now. Uh, I, every year try to do a good mix of the, like the quote unquote classics, at least the ones that I really love. Uh, for instance, this year I had on my list, uh, alien, uh, House of the Devil, Troll Hunter, uh, and the original uh, Japanese grudge, Juon. Uh, I also have some... Very nice. Yeah. I'm going to wrap out the year, I think, with probably like... Um, there's a German uh, horror film I really like called Hagazusa. It used to be on Shudder a long time ago. Now it's on... I don't know. I don't know where you would find it, honestly. No, I just have it on Blu-ray. Uh, I've... I've Man, I let's see. I watched both of I both watched both Wreck and Wreck Two in one sitting. Had a little little marathon there. That was fun. Uh, yeah, so it's it's been a good year for horror movies, man. Like, there's been a lot that's come out, which has been really really good. And there's also just such an abundance now and such an availability. I've also been really on. Uh, I've been on kind of an art horror kick recently, like. Uh, without spoiling anything for any upcoming episodes, but there's a few movies that I want to talk about that are way more on the artsy side that I just absolutely adore. And that's going to be kind of a theme in one of our episodes. But so, yeah, uh, 31 Days of Horror has been really good. Uh, Joe, have you watched anything uh, especially noteworthy? Well, I'm not doing the 31 Days, but I have been spending a lot of time with my personal classics. And a lot of these, everybody watches the same horror movies from the past. Everybody loves Halloween. They love the old Friday the 13th. You love your any 
Freddy Krueger film, Nightmare on Elm Street, is what I was trying to say without messing that up. (laughs) But there are a lot of movies in the past 15 years that have stood out to me as let's push the definition of what horror is, because I think sometimes the best horror movies I've seen, you would actually classify them as thrillers or psychological thrillers, where it's more about the people and how they're interpreting the situation. And I threw one at you, coherence, that I'm lobbying to be the topic of one of our podcasts, because that is a film that messes with your mind, but I think it's more about the people and how we as a group sometimes lose sight of reality. And that's all I can say. Okay. Because everything else would be a spoiler. Well, you know, my uh, my diet for horror is basically year round. This is not a uh, this is not just a monthly hobby for me. That's why we have a podcast. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, it's going to be that I'm absolutely. I actually have that saved in one of my searches right now. Uh, I'm probably this week going to add that in. I have I have a bit of free time this week, so I'm going to probably tack that into uh, my list already. Again, the 31 days of horror becomes like the 45 days of horror for me. So f- tacking a few extra in is absolutely nothing lost on me. Well, we can always sneak in that second Halloween holiday that is supposed to be in April or May. I always forget what it's called. Oh, uh, you're thinking of Valpurgisnacht, which Absolutely. is on April 30th, um, a, a witch's night from uh, Germany. It's a, it's a fun holiday. Look into it. So today we are finally going to talk about, though, this legendary film that I love so much, Suspiria. Thank God. But Lucas, I hear you all saying... Which one? There is only one. Wrong. The answer to that is both. Shit. We are talking about Dario Argento's 1977 psychedelic nightmare masterclass and the 2018 Luca Guadagnino surrealist hellscape. As I have no doubt mentioned before, I typically don't really have an interest in like sequels, remakes, or reboots. And let's face it, the majority of films that get remade, rebooted, or serialized They're just cynical cash grabs, and they're attempting to bleed dry a good story for just cold, hard cash. But the remake of Suspiria is more than that. So I want to put down some ground rules and ideas of how to make sense of this conversation. So first of all, for our sanity, I want to set down a short naming convention. For the original Dario Argento Suspiria, we're just going to call it Suspiria 77 or some like mild permutation of that. And then when we're going to make a distinction of the remake, we're going to call that Suspiria 2018. And I've got to tell you, uh, as you know, from the writer to the audience, my ideas and notes for this entire series were really, really messy until I came up with that. It's not clever by any stretch, but I had to have something to work it out. So next thing, my feelings about these movies are not ambiguous in any regard. I love them both. And I think that both of them by themselves create a very particular atmosphere that no other movie has really gotten correct. And finally, uh, my goal here is to put these films side by side. Instead of one being just a remake of the other, I think they're actually brilliant companion pieces to each other, whether or not that was intentional. I don't, I don't know. So we should start before we actually get into these films talking about some just some kind of, I don't know, uh, minutia, some some of the concepts that outlie Dario Argento's original work. 
The name Suspiria by itself is a really extremely evocative word, and to my ears, it sounds kind of mysterious and sinister, uh, something that's a little familiar, but kind of alien. It's like the details of a dream. So in Latin, the word Suspiria means size, and that's not size as in a measurement, but uh, a sigh. So. Uh, Argento got this idea from a British writer, Thomas de Quincey, uh, and one of his pieces, Suspiria de Profundis, or in English, Sighs from the Deep. De Quincey's book is an amazing piece of prose, consisting of multiple short uh, sections. Pertinent to our discussion is the section, Levana and Our Lady of Sorrow. This piece serves as a brief discussion of the imagined companion to the Roman goddess of childbirth, these three companions are known as Mater Lacrimarum, Mater Tenebrarum, and Mater Suspiriorum. I probably very much just butchered that in Latin, but roll with me here. So in English, those three names mean Our Lady of Tears, Our Lady of Darkness, and Our Lady of Sighs. In shorthand, they're just called the Three Mothers. Now, I'm no expert but I don't know of any actual uh, personages existing like that in Roman mythology. Also, fans of classic horror might be perking up their ears right now. You're probably thinking of Fritz Lieber's Our Lady of Darkness, and that's also making a reference to De Quincey's Three Mothers. That's not particularly relevant to the conversation, but it is a neat fact. And if you haven't read Lieber's Our Lady of Darkness, it's genuinely amazing and you should go check that out. So where was I? Oh, right. Uh, De Quincey's Suspiria de Profundis. So this piece had a particularly deep impact on Dario Argento, so much so that he would go on to create three films based loosely on the ideas put down in Suspiria de Profundis. Suspiria, Inferno, and Mother of Tears, the third mother. All three are good and great on their own, but let's get real. Suspiria is the best of the three, and it's the best known of Argento's work. Prior to its release, Argento was the leading voice of a particular subgenre called Giallo. One last aside about that. So, what is Giallo? Um, it's kind of a minefield to actually discuss. Is Giallo a genre? Is it a subgenre? Or is it just a set of aesthetics and tools? Is it horror? Is it mystery? Is it crime drama? I've got to be honest, I'm honestly choosing to sit out of that argument. If you want a fun discussion about Giallo, go check out the uh, His and Hers Horror podcast episode on that subject. Uh, we'll have a link for that in the show notes. So without falling into the weeds of what Giallo is or isn't, broadly speaking, it's a style of film with its roots in Italian pulp literature. The word Giallo means yellow in Italian and refers to the covers of that type of nalo. Gialli, which would be the plural form of giallo, are movies typically dealing with crimes and violence, oftentimes in stylized ways. And I want you to keep that in mind, the word stylized. Argento really broke into the mainstream with a film called The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Afterwards, he would have a really good run of memorable films like The Cat of Nine Tails, uh, Four Flies on Grey Velvet. But then Suspiria drops in 1977. And how the hell do you even begin to describe Argento's Suspiria? I spent several days racking my brain looking for a concise description. At last, I've settled on a single word, phantasmagoria. That is to say, 
a series of images that are meant to evoke a dreamlike state. Suspiria is dreamlike to a startling extreme and in nearly every regard. Talking about the plot of Suspiria seems kind of silly, actually, but we have to get that out of the way, right? So before I do, I need to make a point. Typically, I do a pretty good job of not spoiling movies too much. It's sort of unavoidable on some level, given the type of show we have. But both Suspiria 77 and Suspiria 2018 are so out into left field that I almost think that spoiling these movies is kind of impossible. So while I'll do my best to not talk about things too much in detail, know that you're going to hear some points here that you might not otherwise just see. Also, uh, Argento's Suspiria was released 45 years ago as of the recording of this episode, so I don't know. I don't quite feel so bad spoiling a movie that's older than me. <laughs> Call me crazy, right? It's, I mean, if you, I, I understand how people might not have seen uh, Argento's Suspiria. It's not exactly the front list of anyone's favorite horror movies, unless you're a jerk like me. But at the same time, if you haven't seen it by now, there's also a good chance you don't want to see it. So... It's one of the definitive founding fathers of what horror would be for decades and in many ways still is because now that stylized use of color that you're about to talk about is just one thing that's starting to really come back. And I think Suspiria is one of those films and I need to follow the naming scheme that you laid down earlier. Suspiria 77 is one of those films. Even if you haven't seen it, it's not that you don't want to or that you're not going to. It's now that you know about it, go watch it. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, at this point, if you just pause the show and go spend 90 minutes watching uh, Suspiria 77, I won't hold that against you in the slightest. It is uh, for me, anyway, a life-altering film, so I, I really recommend it. So, uh, in brief, the plot of Suspiria 1977. Susie Banyan is an American ballerina who has recently arrived in Germany. The first few minutes uh, out of the airport immediately throw her into a torrential downpour, attempting to hail a taxi cab to deliver her to a prestigious dance academy, a, a school of dance. Amidst the chaos of her trying to, well, get into the building, she sees a young woman leaving the building in a terrified rush, yelling some yet unheard details. Susie attempts to gain entry into the school, but is rebuffed via an unknown voice on the school's PA system. Easy enough, okay. Well, our fleeing young woman arrives at her friend's apartment, uh, just asking to crash for the night so she can move on. While attempting to clean herself up and calm herself down, she finds herself attacked by a mysterious supernatural force. And, well, by attacked, I mean she is completely brutalized. Her friend is the next victim, brutally impaled by falling glass from the first victim's plunge through a massive art glass skylight. The next morning, Susie arrives back at the school and begins her slow stumble into an ancient evil. The school is actually the front for a nefarious coven of witches. Okay. In lesser hands, this would be a simple tale, good and evil, fighting in an unusual space. But that's not Dario Argento, is it? Film critic Matt Draper describes Suspiria in one of his video essays as Technicolor Nightmares, and I can't think of a more correct description. 
Suspiria 77 is, in my opinion, one of the most visually arresting films ever made. The colors of the lighting are pushed to a nearly cartoonish degree. The blues are cold, the greens immersive, and the reds are absolutely blood-drenching. But that says nothing of the architecture of the school, which owes a massive debt to German expressionist pieces like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. We could go on and on about single individual facets of this movie, but in the end, Suspiria 77 is really about its sum total. And the part missing from the equation is the use of violence. Argento is, first and foremost, a giallo director, and maybe the greatest exponent of the style. And as such, his kill scenes really don't drift too far from the giallo basics. Your first kill in Suspiria 77 is a brutal knife attack, frenzied in a way that would make maniacs Frank Zito blush or maybe feel some kinship with him, one of the two. <laughs> Most of the violence in Suspiria 77 is actually pretty banal, as much of the violence in a horror movie can kind of be banal, you know what I mean? But as a punctuation of its phantasmagorical atmosphere, these kills somehow feel all the more brutal. Some of that has to do with Argento's direction, to be sure. Again, it's the subtotal. Suspiria 77 is a classic and a masterpiece for damn good reasons. But now we've got to talk Suspiria 2018. So from the top, Susie Banyan is an aspiring American dancer who has arrived in Berlin in 1977. Her first few minutes out of the airport have landed her into the political upheaval of the year where demonstrations, riots, and terrorism is rife. She arrives at the Marcos Dance Group. Susie recently fled the life of an abused Mennonite farm girl and appears to have no formal dance background. Nevertheless, she has secured an audition in front of the school's primary instructor, Madame Blanc. Little does Susie know, a dancer named Patricia has fled the school. She appears to have some sort of paranoid delusions, but believes the school to be the home of a coven full of nefarious witches, who are in the middle of a political struggle between two of the coven's most powerful members. So Suspiria 2018 is not just a simple remake of a movie. Unlike so many other remakes of horror classics, this does not merely ape the original, and then just amp up the amount of blood. Suspiria 2018 has a totally polar opposite approach to telling a nearly identical story, and somehow it works. Uh, a critic uh, on YouTube who goes by Haunted Hippie put out her own comparison of the two Suspiria films and made an extremely astute point about Suspiria 2018. They argue that instead of being a mere remake, Suspiria 2018 is closer to a cover of a song. That description is, in my opinion, absolutely perfect. I don't agree with everything Haunted Hippie said uh, with regards to the films, but I understand precisely what they meant. Instead of bathing every scene in lighting effects and amping up the overt weirdness, director Luca Guadagnino decided to wash out the colors, straighten out the lines, and make the architecture of the film more conventional. Now, that is quote-unquote more conventional inside of its context. Berlin in the 1970s had a shockingly stark contrast to the architecture of Argento's original, and the Berlin Wall looms large over the entire uh, 2018 Suspiria. Uh, it's kind of like a strange, mute character. Um, it reminds me sort of uh, of a Sam Neill and Isabella Adjani vehicle possession in that same regard. Uh, they both use the Berlin Wall in a big way. 
So I digress. Uh, the weirdness of Guadagnino's Suspiria is entirely more covert, at least at first anyway. Now, here we need to start doing something I sort of hate, but I have to compare these two apples to apples. It feels sort of like an insult, to be honest, but it speaks strongly to how these films work, actually. So to start, we've got to talk about the score and the soundtrack. Suspiria 77 has an iconic score by these Italian psychedelic maestros called Goblin. And if you are not cribbing entire sections of that album for your next Halloween party musical playlist, then my friend, you are failing at Halloween. Goblin's Suspiria theme is one of the most perfect pieces of horror music ever made, and it's a twisted lullaby that quickly falls into Pink Floyd-esque nightmare rocking. I absolutely love that entire album, and it will be streaming on my phone at least once a week, every week, from late September through October every year. On the other side of this equation, Suspiria 2018 had an original score and soundtrack created by Tom York of Radiohead. I'm a pretty big fan of Radiohead, all things considered, and I mostly like York's solo material. This one is good, but is strongly indebted to this kind of like icy krautrock sound. Uh, it's more far away and washed out. It's also melancholy and gripping, but rolls in a completely different direction than Goblin's score. Truthfully, I prefer the original Goblin score on an aesthetic level, but York's work for Suspiria 2018 is virtually ideal for the film's entire overall aesthetic. It's also one of the best choices you could make for here is a film that is a cover, I like the way you said that, of a definitive horror classic with a soundtrack that is a definitive horror classic. It's hard to pick someone to follow that up than anyone associated with Radiohead. Oh, sure. I, I uh, what is it, Johnny Greenwood? Uh, I'm blanking on his name all of a sudden, which is ridiculous. Of uh, Radiohead, could I think I think he could have done a, a good job as well. But yeah, Tom York was a, a really good choice for that entire process. And we can sit around and talk about how these movies look and sound all day. And there's some fertile ground for discussion there. But let's be honest, that's not why these movies work together. These films were made in different eras by different directors with very different goals in mind. The real differences are about how the movies flow, and that's what makes up the Haunted Hippies cover song analogy and how it works. Here's the easiest way I can explain this, uh, this whole point. Suspiria 77 isn't style over substance. Suspiria 77 is style generating substance. Whereas Suspiria 2018 is substance generating style. And that's not to say that Suspiria 77 is stupid or unintellectual as far as films are concerned. Far from it, in fact. It's more that Argento doesn't seem to be on an intellectual hunt with this one. This is a case of mood and atmosphere doing all the heavy lifting and pulling it off masterfully. Suspiria 2018 is way more focused on storytelling and making a, a coherent plot of these ideas. For those of you who have seen it already, you know about the Dr. Klemperer subplot in Suspiria 2018. I don't really think the subplot is necessary to the story, but it does add a lot of grist to the mill. And that says nothing of the dance presented in both films. Suspiria 77, the dance that's presented is ballet in the most strict and straightforward sense. There's even a line of dialogue expressly saying that the dancing here is done at a high level more of a finishing school than a place to learn the basics of ballet. 
Whereas the dance presented in Suspiria 2018 is decidedly modern. Gone is the staid formalities of ballet's proud tradition. Madame Blanc has this absolutely gorgeous line in the film, and I think it explains why ballet isn't practiced there. The line is, quote, There are two things that dance can never be again, beautiful and cheerful. Today, we need to break the nose of every beautiful thing. Isn't that just a gorgeous line? I really do like that a lot. And keeping with that theme, it's contextual to what the film is trying to do. Yeah, that's a that's a really, really sharp observation, actually, that um, we'll talk the, about this a little bit kind of as as we go. But ultimately, Suspiria 2018, it is a beautiful film in what it does and how it was put together and what it accomplishes. But it is a vicious, ugly film in a lot of ways, not just uh, in terms of violence and gore, but it, it screws with your head and it screws with your heart quite a bit. It's it's. It's very interesting in that regard. Am, am I getting ahead of you? I really want to talk about the style of the original film and how some of the horror tropes come from the Italian viewpoint of film. Um, we'll get to that here in a second. I'm, I'm going to hold off then. Yeah, I don't, well, don't want to steal it from yeah, you. It's, well, it's not that you're stealing it from me. It's that it's a subtextual thing that I didn't know if we had the space to talk about here, but why not? We should go into it. Um so uh, to kind of wrap up my point, uh, for a film set in a ballet school, Suspiria 77 actually doesn't have a lot of on-screen dancing in it. I think one or two scenes maybe total. Uh, Suspiria 2018, however, has multiple scenes set in dance practices as well as a full demonstration of a highly nerve-wracking and evocative dance piece. It's one of the center points of the film. The story, even the Dr. Klemperer subplot, creates an atmosphere more than an aesthetic. And in fact, I think if the aesthetic were more experimental, the whole thing would kind of just fall apart. Moreover, the supernatural elements of Suspiria 2018 are more ghoulish and more inexplicable. They are purely in the realm of magical. I stated earlier that the kills in Suspiria 77 are pure giallo fare. Well, in Suspiria 2018, they are not only magical, but they're genuinely unsetting. They also sit perfectly in the realm of mixed media, a great blend of like digital and practical effects working together. The first kill of the film, oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who are in the know, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who are waiting to finish the chat here, prepare yourself. I'm a pretty tough customer when it comes to horror movie violence, and I don't flinch in the theater very easily. But this one, ooh, oh man, it's gruesome, and it serves the film really well. And from that point, you're on edge. It could happen anytime, and frankly, it kind of just does. So these two films are opposite sides of the same coin, reflections of radically different times and places, iterations of a concept across generations. Remember back at the beginning of the episode when I said to remember the word stylized? Both of these films rely on a stylized action to work. Argento's stylization is created to be dreamlike, veering wildly between surreal eeriness and an absolutely vicious assault. Guadagnino's choice of stylization is to oppress and weigh you down in the pace of the film. It's, I think, a little over two hours. It never feels like it drags. It's always moving, but it is an oppressive, icy pace. And when the genuinely frightening scenes roll out, 
Well, you'll see what I mean when you actually go watch this movie. <laughs> but I want to take a second and kind of rewind back to what Joe was saying earlier about uh, the Italian viewpoint in horror filmmaking. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit? I'm going to do my best, and I have to tell this story in pieces. A lot of my history with horror, there are things that before I didn't really understand why they were scary or I would go see a movie like The Woman in Black or Crimson Peak and I didn't think they were good because I was looking at it incorrectly. So to understand why that was scary culturally, historically for the person or the people that created that story gave me a whole new insight. And it all started with Troll 2. Everybody says Troll 2 is the worst film ever, right? It, it, it's on most lists as one of the worst films ever made. I'm not saying it's a good film, but if you look at how the camera is used, how the actors are portrayed, and they just seem to be absurdly over the top and insane at times, and the big scene that everybody talks about, they're eating her, and then they're going to eat me. Oh my God, that... <laughs> <laughs> that all cleared up for me when I saw a documentary about the making of RoboCop. And okay. I realized that this style, at least when I look at these older films that are made by Italian directors, they are trying to hammer the emotion into your head in a way that breaks through language and culture. It's not just what they're saying. It's not just how pretty the scene is or how they're using the color. You mentioned Phantasmagoria. They are trying to shove the emotion of the act into your mind. I mentioned it just now. They're not using language. It's not about what people are saying. It's not about what they're saying to each other. It's about what is physically on the screen. And how is the audience going to react to that? You know, you hit a you hit a really interesting point there. Um, there was a there's a horror critic who I follow. They host the uh, Scaredy Cats channel on YouTube. They made this interesting point about the original Suspiria. They said that this movie is not. They're, they're, how do they put it? Um, we're gonna have to do some judicious fucking editing here. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Yeah. So they describe this film as mindless, but not in the sense that it's stupid. It's that it is not of the mind. It is a film that hits you in the back brain. It's a film that hits you in the gut. It's a film that manipulates you physically and emotionally, but it never appeals to your intellect at any point. Same could be true about RoboCop, Starship Troopers. These oh. films that use the camera in a way that it's not supposed to be correct. It's supposed to piss you off. I think you're I think you're on the right track there. I, I slightly disagree with uh, Starship Troopers and Robocop, but I think the way the film is shot is shot in this really uh, hyper real, uh, very evocative way. But it's also it's so gut churning. Both of those movies are so D gut churning. Don't think about the movie as a whole, though. Think about the close ups, like when stuff is happening around the character, the scenes where he's being turned into RoboCop and they keep cutting back and forth and there's the time jump and people are in his face like this or the propaganda films at the beginning of Starship Troopers. It's supposed to offend, but not for the sake of offending. It's to get you in the mindset of, I am offended. It's it's just, it's so racking on your brain and Suspiria does that too. There are things that happen in this movie and I don't want to spoil the plot, 
But everything that happens in the Omen, I'm going to go on a limb and say they took that from things that happen in Suspiria because Suspiria 77 does not explain why things are happening the way that 2018 and the way modern horror films will when you talk about witchcraft and supernatural things. I, you know, I think you're, you make a really interesting point there. And I think the the, the point of contrast we can make there uh, with The Omen, because I genuinely love The Omen. That is a really good movie. It's a great film. Uh, the one thing about The Omen is that it assumes you have a certain baseline knowledge of Catholic eschatology. It assumes you already know the rise of the Antichrist as it's listed in the book of Revelation. Okay, some of us do, but some of us, and I'm pointing at me here, are weirdos who just know this stuff. So I, I think you're, there's a valid point there. The difference being Suspiria never, and both of these movies, Suspiria 77 and Suspiria 2018, they never bothered to show you how the, the magic of this witch coven works because it's kind of not the point. You're supposed to just be afraid that these dance witches have this power. And I don't know, man. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, you know? I, I am sometimes happy to just have a a, a a creepy school full of dance witches trying to murder someone. It would be so much easier for me to make this point if I could just go into spoilers, and I don't want to do that. I want everybody <laughs> to go watch this movie. But again, spoilers for a movie that's been out for 50 years, The Death of the Accompanist. Oh, you know, that's a man, that is a great scene, one. Uh, but if that scene happened in The Omen, it was Damien. In Suspiria, it's they don't explain <laughs> what happens between what the witches do and the the dog just getting the taste for flesh. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely correct. And uh, the closest thing you get to it is the very end when they're starting to figure out the lore of witches and the coven, and you see a little bit of a coven ceremony, and you start to see that okay, so everything bad that's been happening has been the direct result of these women getting together and making it happen. It's the difference between, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to offend somebody. It's the difference between traditional views on witchcraft and what we all grew up with, with Wiccan. You know, that, that that's a really kind of strange tangent to make there, but I don't think you're like necessarily off base, right? There's, this is not to ever slander anyone who has uh, who believes in Wicca or whatever? That's not what I'm aiming at here. Is that when we talk about historical witchcraft, like when we think about like the Salem witch trials or witch trials in Bavaria or in other spots of continental Europe? You know, on one hand, there were people who were murdered more or less en masse on the uh, charge of witchcraft. But in terms of what you might describe as actual real evidence of witchcraft, this is where the argument starts getting very uh, fuzzy. For a lot of cultures, there was certain what you might describe as magical practices that existed. Uh, in, in Salem Village, there were absolutely people who were practicing what you might call a folk magic. They were doing uh, what they believed to be magical spells to, you know, help bring in their crops or to help make their lives a little easier because as anyone who's even remotely interested in history can tell you about the times of the witch trials, the great witch panics throughout America and Europe, it was a terrible time to be alive. Not as bad as say the black plague, but not terribly much better ultimately. So everyone was 
probably doing something that we would think of as a little witchy. But all of the people who were executed were executed kind of because they were thinking about, uh, well, this magic that they're doing is the product of the devil. And all of these people who died, in all of these cases, we never once found an actual, like, real coven of witches who were actually worshipping the devil. Did one exist? I don't know. Maybe. It's possible. I mean, I suppose nothing's impossible. But that's not what we ever found. Uh, interestingly, this is like the plot of Rob Zombie's The Lords of Salem, a movie that I will defend to the grave and no one else seems to like other than me. I was getting visuals of the pit and the pendulum there for a second, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I have the 93 version. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's a that movie's a lot of fun. It's a bad movie, but it is it is a lot of fun. Like I will pay to watch La uh, Lance Henriksen do just about anything. But man, that movie is a the movie's a trip. Yeah. So, you know, in talking about, man, you're going to have to edit out so much of my stuttering in this episode. Holy shit. You should hear the other ones. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, so you don't reference Lance Henriksen in uh, The Pit and the Pendulum in 1993 and not come, a, come at that from the perspective of a fan of horror media who's been at it for many years. And I'm happy to report that at no time during my fandom have I chased someone with an axe or been stuck in a dance academy full of murder witches or anything like that. And how do I want to deliver this line? So, What about high school? <laughs> Just checking. Uh, at any point, may we all have such a charmed existence to never be murdered with an axe or, or attacked by murder witches. But in order for horror to work, it needs to kind of indulge in a stylization, right? Real life can be brutal, but not Texas Chainsaw Massacre brutal. There's a lot of fertile ground to discuss how stylized action creates that horror. The follow-up to Argento Suspiria, the wildly underrated Inferno, is maybe not as phantasmagorical as its predecessor, but it still wields a strange atmosphere, well, like an axe. Joe, you're the resident expert on heavy metal, so I, I want maybe you can tune in and help discuss this point. Heavy metal uses a lot of evocative imagery and fictional accounts to, to generate an effect. For me, a prime example of something like that is The Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden uh, for its storytelling and overall tone. What are some other like examples or touch points you would recommend our audience check out to help with that? That was the theme going all the way back to Black Sabbath. When they would perform the song Black Sabbath, it was a story about waking up in the middle of the night and seeing something. And later on, when you get into the Dio era, especially, and throughout the 80s, and you nailed it on the head with Iron Maiden, a lot of, especially the power metal bands and the heavy metal bands following Judas Priest, before it was about girls and cars and getting lucky, it was about fantasy the witchcraft and the wizardry of it all and what sort of surreal thing was going to happen today that was going to drag me down to the pit with the dark one and then King Diamond shows up and nobody really sings like that, right? I love King Diamond. <laughs> the answer to your question, there's a lot of examples of it and Number of the Beast is a great one because that's when heavy metal is about the story and the fantasy of it all. 
Argento's Suspiria, as we've no doubt illustrated here, is a classic. It's one of the real masterpieces in the canon of late 20th century horror media. The two reviews I mentioned earlier from Haunted Hippie and Matt Draper cover some interesting grounds, and I think you should go check out their work. Hell, a lot of ink has been spilled over the last few years about how important Suspiria 77 is for the horror genre. And I think it's only a matter of time for Guadagnino's Suspiria to earn a place similar to that. It might not break ground the way Argento's did, but it is a real gem. And while you're at it, check out Inferno. It's a lot of fun. It and Suspiria are perfect movies to throw on at your next Halloween gathering, or if you're like me, your next Easter gathering your nephew's bar mitzvah. You understand what I'm going for. Uh, Christmas, St. Patrick's Day. Do yourself a favor and put on some Argento in the background. Sure, your family will likely stop returning to your calls, but, you know, who needs them, right? They don't have a soundtrack written by Goblin. Uh, I'm sorry, Joe. What are we talking about again? We were talking about how the original Suspiria is so fucking great because it is using the emotion of the scene to make the audience uncomfortable it's like the good and the bad and the ugly and i really mean that is that film about the gunfight or is it about the tension so dear audience what are some of your favorite stylized horror films are you a fan of giallo and if so what are some of your favorites not just the actual movies but what are some of your favorite giallo titles they're often really silly Did I tell you that I found a website with a list detailing the 10 silliest Giallo movie titles? Uh, The two that have stuck out with me, uh, The House with the Laughing Windows, and the second movie, Death Laid an Egg. I don't know what. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What the hell does that even mean? I'll throw a link to that uh, in the show notes so you can all have a good giggle. Anyway, uh, drop us a line, thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com, so we can talk about the best and worst of Giallo. Uh, Joe, please tell the newest members of our Dance Academy where they can find more of your work. If you are a fan of all things heavy metal, you need to check out all the podcasts at discussmetal.com, where we are talking about your favorite bands. We are talking about heavy metal subjects that I think need to be talked about. I'm also working on a sweet Star Trek podcast on my free time in whatever free time an engineer of multiple shows gets. And that is at trekafpodcast.com. That's right. Trek as podcast.com. But I want everybody to listen to the Fright Lab and leave your comments, leave your five-star reviews on whatever podcasting platform you found. And at some point, there's going to be a website. There might even be a Patreon. But send us your questions. Send us your comments. You heard Lucas say it, the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. And if you are the kind of person that likes to create creepy sounds and you want to hear your music on our show, send us an email. We want to hear from you. Absolutely. Um, Joe and I are both extremely enthusiastic about indie art and independent artists. If you have some creepy music or some musical project that is, you know, roughly horror adjacent, please let us know. We will absolutely talk about your music on the air. If you don't mind, we will play it on the air. We want to branch out and give every indie artist a chance to do what we're doing. So we're having a lot of fun. 
And as always, The Fright Lab is written and performed by me, Lucas Shokum, as well as produced and partially performed by one Mr. Joseph Wren. We really do appreciate you listening. Uh, please visit us on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating. Also, go check out the work of Haunted Hippie and Matt Draper on YouTube and go check out his and hers horror podcast. We are not formally affiliated with any of these groups, but we really think they're great. See you next time. I'm making it up as I go along. <laughs> <laughs> oh Christ, leave that out. <laughs> Fuck's sakes. Let the dead stay dead, Joe. What kind of coven would we be if we decided to leave the dead dead? I hate to say it, but you've made a really good point there. Holy shit, we almost made an hour. Yeah, hey. Lucas, keep talking. <laughs> <laughs>